Welcome, everyone, to the Embit Podcast. Today, let's talk about entrepreneurship. Over the past few decades, it has gone from being looked at as taboo to being idolized. And since the creation of the internet and social media, it looks like everyone's becoming one. We're sitting down on our couch consuming the stories of people successfully building their companies and think, oh, wait, I could have done that. With there being over 582 million entrepreneurs in the world, the competition is next level. And that begs the question, how do you do it? And what if you can't raise any venture capital for your business idea? Can you still have a business? The answer is yes. And today, as a guest, Mike Salguero will share his story of building a $600 million business from no venture funding. And he'll share why, after his last company, he has not taken a single dollar from venture capital, and maybe why you shouldn't either. First off, Mike, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate it. So let's first start off with your personal backstory. What would probably be the earliest thing I would need to know about you to understand who you are and all that you have accomplished? Yeah, sure. So I was born in Paraguay in South America and moved up to the United States when I was four months old. My parents got divorced and my mom moved up with her four children. So I was the youngest of four. And I grew up in Western Massachusetts in a small farm town about two hours west of Boston. And so a big part of my story is the fact I grew up without a father and felt abandoned as a kid and felt like I wanted a father and didn't have one. So that was definitely one big driver of like why I started wanting to be successful and wanted to get into business and all those things. I came to college in Boston. So that's a bit of a fast forward, but I came to college in Boston and pretty pretty quickly decided school was pretty boring and I wanted to get jobs and work full time. So I started working a lot starting, you know, my freshman year. My first or most interesting job was I was a vendor at Fenway Park, like selling peanuts and throwing peanuts to customers and left and just started a whole bunch of entrepreneurial ventures. Spent three years actually working, like having a real job, and then went back to being an entrepreneur. You grew up without a father. What was that experience like and how did it affect you? So... I mean, being a father now has shown me how important a father is to a child's life. I was always the kid, like none of my friends growing up had parents who were divorced. I was like the only one who like didn't have a father. And so I was the kid who really like latched on to other father figures, like like the fathers of of my friends or uncles or my grandfather, and really tried to get like guidance from other people, which really has actually stretched into like, I'm a fiend for finding mentors. Like I have lots of mentors who are helping me. If I have a problem, I have no problem picking up the phone and like trying to find somebody who can help me with the solve the problem. I think some of that is, you know, its root is that I was always looking for a father figure. Being abandoned is really hard because you, you build this, like, you, you don't feel worthy. And that's a hard hole to to fill. And it turns out that being successful or running a big company or giving away money or buying a nice watch, like none of that actually works. Like none of that helps you feel worthy. And there's something about like never feeling a father's love that I think can cause me and many others to just kind of constantly be striving for more. But it's, you know, like my mom was amazing. My family was amazing. My life was pretty great, even though I didn't have a dad. 
And you look at entrepreneurs, a lot of entrepreneurs start out as like a pretty tough upbringing. Like that seems to be a thread of a lot of successful entrepreneurs and fathers not being around is definitely a big piece as well. So I feel like I fit right in with that, with that crowd and, and yeah, it was kind of well raised for the role I'm in now. I think we're all part of the people that influence us the most. Who are some of the people that have influenced you the most and how have they affected you? Yeah. So my grandfather, my mother's father was a big influence on me. He was pretty successful in business and did a bunch of international business stuff. And watching him both be an entrepreneur, like do his own thing, as well as the way he he had a big heart and he was very generous. And so just seeing him and seeing how he conducted himself had a huge impact on me. My uncle, so my, my mother's brother, also had a huge impact on me. He also an entrepreneur. And I just got to see like people who choose to like live a lifestyle kind of first versus thinking about their business first. Entrepreneurship very much can be a lifestyle design type of thing where you can decide what kind of lifestyle you want to live and then have your business fit that, like help fit that lifestyle. And I saw those examples pretty early on, which was really helpful. And then my mom, my mom was really amazing growing up. I mean, she definitely gave us the love that, you know, of two parents by herself and raised four of us. And all four of us are decently well situated and successful. And I, I, I mean, I have three kids now and, and a wife, and I can't imagine doing you know, four kids by yourself. That's a, that seems wild. So now with a lot more experience, like, She's kind of become a hero in terms of like, I have no idea how she did that. Yeah. My grandmother also had four kids. They're all super successful now. And it's quite insane to be able to see. You mentioned you use that personal experience as a propellant. I know when I was in elementary school, I was bullied a lot. And I used that to be able to climb the ladder and do things that I might not have and take the risks I might not have if I didn't have that experience. How did you use it as a propellant? And how do you think others can use maybe negative situations that they're in and turn it into a positive instead of a negative? Yeah, I mean, I think so much of so much of like being successful is about mindset. It's kind of like, what mind do you bring to the work you're doing? And so, yeah, if you've been bullied and you're constantly beaten down and you have to like you know, try to do things differently or build a a tough mindset where like, you're not going to be beaten down anymore. That changes you. And that can, that can take you super far in terms of your life. Because like, for example, we'll talk about venture funding or whatever, but you know, you'll get told no, like a hundred times before somebody says yes. If you, if you go out raising venture, at least for me, that's what happened. So if you don't have that backbone of just like, I'm just going to keep getting up. I don't care. Like, you're just not going to survive. Right. And so, so much of entrepreneurship is like trying things and it didn't work, trying things again, it doesn't work, trying it again, it doesn't work, trying it again, it doesn't work. And then it's like, oh, it works. Okay, great. And so many companies have been built with like, you know, under the hood, it's like, yeah, we were on our like last bet and then that one worked and then things, things started going well. And if you don't have that as part of your like DNA, I think it's pretty tough to, to survive. So for me, you know, I, this isn't all chalked up to like not having a father, but certainly I was very, very competitive. And so I was the youngest of four kids. 
So if you're the youngest of four kids with a single mother, like you're not getting like, I don't know, seconds on food you're not getting, or like the thing that fall that you see a dollar bill on the ground and there's a scramble for it. Like you're not getting it. It, you know, any, anything that you want to do, you're definitely not going to, you're not going to go to the restaurant you want to go to. You're not going to do like, Hey, let's go to the park. or like, I want to play a game. Like whatever it is that you want to do, it's not happening. So you just get this constant like rejection happening and you're just okay with that. And it's just like part of life. I think that one of the things that has set me up for success, and this has happened multiple times in my career, is my ability to just be told no and just like keep going. Like, I don't care. Like another no is just one more no before I get a yes. And whether that's raising venture capital or whether that's trying things on ButcherBox or or, or getting a job, like I had a whole experience where I left entrepreneurship to go get a job and... Yeah, with that, it went on like 75 interviews. And everyone's like, no, 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 no. It's like, all right, I'll just keep going. And eventually somebody's going to say yes. And like having that hope and having that that grit and that willingness to just keep going, I think very much depends on kind of your upbringing. And like if if everything was handed to you, it's a lot, it's a lot harder to have that. So the people with like tough stories, people who have been through a lot tend to be much stronger people on the inside and are are willing to just keep, you know, slogging because they know that this is not the worst it can be by any stretch. Yeah. Resilience. I know for the first 50, 100 people I emailed from my podcast, I don't think a single one of them said yes, 95% of people didn't even respond. So I think just keep going through the motions and having that a lot of drive to be able to get to where you want to go. But now that we transition a little bit into entrepreneurship, what initially drew you to entrepreneurship? I know you mentioned you did peanut sales at a vendor, but what initially drew you? It's the lifestyle design piece. I mean, there's there's two components. So lifestyle, lifestyle design, which I define as like your ability to decide what you want your lifestyle to look like. And then you build the business around the lifestyle that you want. And then secondly, unless it's a sales job, there are very few jobs out there where your compensation equals like the work that you put into it. And entrepreneurship is like kind of the closest you can get to that. Like the harder you work, the more you make. And, you know, as somebody who is relentlessly and doggedly just trying to like keep things going... I was very motivated by sales jobs where it's like, oh, if you run around faster or you sell better, if you're smarter at what you're doing, you'll make more money. And entrepreneurship is is a similar approach where not always, but for a large part, if you, you know, you can get you get compensated for your efforts in a way that doesn't exist if you're just if you just have a job. When you first started, what was that lifestyle that you were trying to get after or accomplish? So super early on, I was really... So so my very first entrepreneurial venture was a t-shirt company. And I created these t-shirts. And because I was like sold peanuts at Fenway Park, I also like... I I was very used to like selling stuff to to audiences of people. So I would print these t-shirts and then go around and sell them. And at the time, I was really interested in this notion that like something that I created, like something that like... I designed was then going to be on other people, like other people liked it enough to like wear it and walk around with it. Like, I just thought that was the coolest thing ever, like that a customer would care 
as much about something. And I used to like go around Boston. I would like see people wearing my, my stuff. And like, it was like really cool. And so, you know, that turned into like, then I got into t-shirt manufacturing because I knew how to manufacture t-shirts. So then people were like, where do you get these? And I was like, Oh, we make them. And then turned in that turned into a whole kind of business. Then I was in real estate development. I was trying to, I was dabbling and trying to buy buildings and there was a certain point where I looked around me. I had a bunch of t-shirt inventory. I was like negotiating this real estate deal. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, at that point, this is like 2004, 2005. At that point, there like weren't the resources for entrepreneurship that there are today. Like there's a lot more resources now. Like if you want to be an entrepreneur, it's like, cool. There's a whole bunch of stuff to read, a whole bunch of accelerator groups, mentors, like there's a lot more than there was. Entrepreneur organization. Yeah. yeah, totally. There's just way more. And at the time, like I didn't know what to do. And so I decided to go get a real job, a real job, which is like a big regret for me because I spent three years like working at a company and feeling like my soul was like getting sucked out of me, <laughs> but did that and then started my first company custom made. So yeah, the arc of of my entrepreneurial experience, like if I had had more mentors or more people around me or more people cheering me on or more people thinking like this was a good path for me, I think I would have done a lot better. The other challenge with entrepreneurship is like it can make people nervous. Like my mom was pretty nervous that I wanted to like leave college and just be an entrepreneur. Like that was like... You know, I don't, I don't know if your parents are nervous about what you're yeah, doing, they are. but like, you know, it's just like people, they, like, it's not, even though it's like, what do you mean? I control my own destiny. Like I get to do what I want. Like there's so many great things about it, but just in today's society, entrepreneurship equals, I don't know, like you're going to be ruined, financially ruined. And interestingly, like entrepreneurs, the good ones are some of the most risk adverse people I know. Like the the common misconception is like it's so risky. Like I can't, I could never take that risk. And the reality is that people don't like you don't think of it that way. I don't think of it that way. Like I, I, I mean, I did personally guarantee our credit card for you know a year because we had to. But like I don't, I'm not taking big risks. Like you don't have to. You just have to think differently about how do you like you know reduce your risks. Definitely. You mentioned custom made. I want to talk about that a little bit. What was the business and how did you first come across it? Sure. So custommade.com was a marketplace for custom stuff, mostly furniture and jewelry. Uh, it had been started in 1996 and we bought it in 2008. So it had been around for 12 years. We bought it because, well, my, my co-founder was buying a coffee table, a custom coffee table. He worked with a guy, a maker on there who made him a beautiful coffee table. And the maker's like, I get all my business from that website and I pay $35 a year for my subscription. And we call it like a shack in Manhattan. We're like, this is perfect. It, it gets all this inbound traffic because it's custom made. So if you type in custom made coffee table, you'd land on it. And it's being under monetized. Like there's, you know, these people are spending $35 to get all of their business. Like, it was like, you know, the coffee table is a few thousand dollars. It's like, it doesn't make sense. We can like build it better. So I approached the owners, wanted to see if he would sell and he finally sold. And then we ran around town with a logo on a cell phone, trying to get people to give us money, which again, we heard lots of no's. And 
we got started. And I did that for eight years. I started as a listing service, which is what we purchased. And then we pivoted to a marketplace where we would stand in between the transactions. So much like an Upwork, but for custom stuff. So customer would say, this is what I'm looking for. Here's some pictures that inspire me. And then we'd have makers who are in their area bid on it and, and then facilitate the transaction through the website. Uh, we raised about $30 million of venture funding from VCs such as Google and First Round Capital and Atlas and Schooner and a bunch of other like well-known VCs. <clears throat> and the business didn't work. Like it just, it just didn't work yeah, for a whole host of reasons, which I'm happy to get into. And we were stuck. Like we, we basically tried to change out teams. So we ended up firing everybody and rehiring people and, you know, just like changing over the organization, but the product, there wasn't like product market fit. So we were really good at raising money, but we weren't necessarily, we hadn't necessarily found product market fit yet. And that, yeah, that, that was a humbling experience for me because it's one of these, like, like I said, Hey, entrepreneurship's great. Like you work hard and you can like get the rewards. In this case, I worked my ass off for like seven and a half years and it didn't work. And we had a lot of fun and like, you know, made money and whatever, but like it, we didn't unlock the business. And so we ended up in 2015 around Memorial Day. So like actually right around now. 2015, we closed the business. And I was my co-founder and four other people from the company actually continued to run the company. They changed it. They just do custom jewelry. It's really great stuff. And I and 50-ish employees were... Uh, that was It was like our last day. And I had all these plans to take all this time off and like, you know, go figure out what I wanted to do next. But I ended up taking the weekend off and then starting starting ButcherBox. And I had this like chip on my shoulder about raising funding, about how that had not been the right thing for me. And so when I started, I was like, I don't care how small this business is. I'm not raising money. And here we are today. I heard from a previous podcasts you did. You originally bought the business for Forex revenue. And one of the things that you would do is you would try to go around to other employees' desks and try to get them to work on Saturdays. I've oftentimes talked about like how if you don't have product market fit, like it doesn't really matter how hard you're pushing on that boulder to get it up the hill. It's just going to keep falling back down. And so the first company, Custom Made, we never reached product market fit. And so we were always pushing that boulder and it just like didn't go anywhere. And the reality is that I spent like, I spent almost every weekend there. I sacrificed like my health, my, you know, time with my family, time with my new wife, you know, a lot of my weekends, like I sacrificed a whole bunch of stuff to make the company work. And it, it didn't. And so what didn't work was like, more work on this equals results that didn't work versus butcher box where it like the the snowball just started rolling down the hill like immediately and we were just like holding on for dear life very different and so there is a huge difference when you actually have product market fit and i think you know for for a lot of founders especially first time founders especially first time founders who are funded there's this belief that you need to be 24-7 in the business, always working on it. That's the only way to be successful. And I would humbly suggest that if you have not found product market fit, 
it's not the time to spend 24-7 on your business because it won't work. How do you find product market fit then? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't know. Because my first company, I didn't. And the second one, it seems like we came out of the gate and we're like, oh, we have fit. So I'm not sure. I know the feeling is very different though. Got it. Yeah, I do know. I was working early on at a startup. Uh, I know initially we didn't have product market fit. We had a few hundred users. It just wasn't working. But when we switched over and pivoted, you know, things started to click way quicker. So I do see that. You mentioned earlier that in the last business, you had to fire everybody. What happened to get you to that conclusion? And how did that work out? I mean, what happened was we had a lot of pressure from our venture capitalists to change things up because things weren't working. And so we ended up having to like, you know, they're like, well, this person's never done this before. So you should find somebody who's done it before. We're like, okay. And so we ended up letting people go, which was super hard. I mean, the, my, my biggest regret from that portion of my career is that there were lots of people who I was really close with who I let go because I had a ton of pressure from outside people. And like, I just made calls that I wish I didn't make people always come and go. So that's, that's okay. But I think like you also have this original team of people who are helping you get somewhere and it's hard. It's really hard if you're a founder of a company to take that initial group of people and have them actually scale with the company. That's hard. And even here, I mean, I was a lot more intentional this time about making sure that my original people could last. And now we're, you know, eight years in and most of them are gone as well. And that's okay. But yeah, the business changes so much. Like the culture changes, the expectations change. It's hard to take somebody who's like really good at the scrappy startup thing and then have them also be good at like, you know, the well-managed organization thing. Those are like two different skill sets. You talked about your experience a little bit with venture capitalists. Why didn't that work out so well? And why did you decide not to raise VC money for now what you're working on is ButcherBox? Venture capital is absolutely needed, like as an asset class. I think it's important. Certainly for some types of businesses, it's very important. Businesses that have a huge J curve, meaning like large investment time period, followed by like, oh, okay, then we can reap the rewards, very much probably need something like venture capital. But we raised venture, you know, if I look back and I'm honest, like we raised venture because that's like kind of what we thought we needed to do. Like, you know, you you look at like the technology news. Well, what do you read? TechCrunch. If I went on TechCrunch right now, it's probably the dozen articles in a row that are like funding story, funding story. Well, maybe not now because every, maybe it's like things going <laughs> right. under. But that tends to be like the conversation. It's like, who's getting funded? How much are they getting funded? And that just, be, that's like what everybody's thinking about. So if you're running a company like we were and you're like, wow, we're we're kind of doing well. What do we do now? It's like, oh, well, everyone's raising money. We should raise money too. And so we kind of got into venture because we thought that was what we needed to do. Meanwhile, we had like a almost profitable, decent little company on our hands that I think like if we had if we had kept it private, we had kept raising like little bits of angel capital, I think we would have been in a much better spot. When we brought in venture, what venture 
investors want is for you to either be a hit or get off their dance card. Like that's it, right? Especially if they're on your board. If they have to like sit on your board, because they only make a few bets a year, right? And they have to go tell their partners about why you're either doing well or not doing well. So they come in and they're like, you should do this, this, and this. And like, they haven't looked at any, like, they don't know your business. They've, they've looked at it for 15 minutes before the meeting, and then they're going to come in and tell you what to do. And so, you know, and then there's there's just a ton of pressure to like go raise more money or sell the company. Because the way that these funds work is they invest in you in the fund, and then they want to see a step up in valuation. So if they invest in you at like a $10 million valuation, what they want to see is like, can you raise more money at a $40 million valuation? Because then they can tell their next investors for their next fund, like, hey, look at that. We 4X the valuation of this company. Meanwhile, like it's just on paper, like it hasn't, nothing's actually transpired, but that's the racket, right? And venture, the way venture works, the, the racket is more and more funds, like fund one, fund two, fund three, fund four. And the faster you get those out, the more fees you collect. And that's really good because then you make more money as a venture capitalist. So they're looking to like constantly have you either raise money or burn through your money as fast as possible to like get to that next value inflection or like move aside. And the reality is a lot of businesses like take time. You're like, you don't have product market fit yet. Like for us, we were like, nah, we don't really have product market fit. And they're like, keep going. Like, you know, put gas on this. And we're like, okay, but we should probably just skinny down the team and like really hunker down and try to figure this out. And that's not what they're interested in. So, and and then like investors in general, it's it's hard to find an investor who takes a long-term view. So with ButcherBox, you know, we're trying to transform the meat industry and that is a long-term play. And one of the things I'm really happy about us not having investors is we're not on any time horizon. Like we're not on any timeline. Doesn't matter. It's going to take longer than expected. Like that's okay. And I think that that helps us be more sustainable as a company. And so I, I, venture is important, but I think venture is over sold right now. Like everyone thinks they need to raise venture capital and you don't. There are plenty of ways to run a company without taking venture capital. I agree. When I spoke with Noam Bardeen, who was the CEO of Waze, he had a company prior to running Waze that he went public early on through an IPO at a billion dollar valuation. And he said during those times is when a company that was worth a billion dollars meant it sold for or went public or something for a billion dollars. But now there's a massive shift where now you just have to raise money at a billion dollar valuation, which doesn't really mean a lot because there's, I saw this guy on YouTube, his name's Max Fosh. He claimed to be at one point the wealthiest person in the world for five or 10 minutes because he got somebody on the street to invest $50 for millions of shares in a company that was worth nothing. So I I think it's more for media and, you know, lazy journalism nowadays with what we see with a lot of the valuations. But yeah, so I want to transition a little bit to ButcherBox. When your wife was diagnosed with a thyroid condition, you both learned that grass-fed beef contains nutrients that could help alleviate some of the symptoms. But you guys struggled to find it in nearby grocery stores. How did that lead to the development of ButcherBox? Yeah. So actually grass-fed beef is part of an anti-inflammation diet. So corn-fed or grain-fed beef can leave your body inflamed, whereas grass-fed does not. And so that was like the distinction 
at least the diets we were following said that. So that's the distinction of why we started. And so we started looking for grass-fed beef. We, you know, we're reading these blogs that said eat grass-fed beef and we didn't know where to go. And so we started looking for it and couldn't find it. And then I just kind of got obsessed with like, where do we find grass-fed beef? And ended up like finding a farmer who raised cows on grass and bought what's called the cow share, which is like half a cow or a whole cow. So it's like all this meat, you get all this meat. And I didn't have enough room for it in my freezer. So I started giving it out to my friends. And that that was like the first, the first push into selling grass-fed beef. One of my friends, and this is while I was running Custom Aid, one of my friends was like, this would be so much better if it was delivered to my house. And I was like, that's interesting. Like, hmm. And at the time, I really wanted to like run a subscription business again because early days custom made with subscription. Subscription businesses are amazing because instead of finding new customers every month, you get to retain customers from last month and add new customers this month. And so I was really interested in running a subscription business and really was looking for like a hobby. I was not looking to start a big company at the time. I knew I was going to start a big company at some point, but I didn't think that this was going to be my big company. This was like a little hobby thing I was going to do. And then I was going to go figure out what's next. Got it. Currently, you have around 300 employees from LinkedIn. With Over the past few years, you've talked about using the barbell strategy for hiring. What is it? Yeah, we have 200 employees. I don't gotcha. know. LinkedIn's probably LinkedIn's counting former people as well. <laughs> yeah. So the barbell strategy is something that we use certainly early on, which is pairing like super young and hungry people, like people right out of college or or they don't have to go to college and pairing them with people at like the tail end of their career. So my original group of people was like, three people, three or four people who are like directly out of college, or some of them like were kind of in college and helping. And then one guy who was my meat buyer, who I pulled out of retirement, who was like 70 years old. And what I have found is obviously young people, young, hungry, you know, willing to take a lot of feedback, really coachable, et cetera. And then older people, like people who are like 70, are really just looking to like have have a fun problem to work on and and in many cases it's like the last job or they don't even need the job because they've moved out like they're just kind of like man I could retire but like I'd love to be challenged and we found that that type of employee is like really great and oftentimes overlooked you know oftentimes people are looking for somebody who's in their mid 40s as like a senior executive and you know, the difference between someone in their mid 40s and somebody who's 70 is obviously like an additional 25 years of experience, right? And they're in a totally different stage of life where like, you know, they're not trying to coach softball games. They're like, you know, they're, it's just, a, it's a different beast. That's the barbell strategy. So you've got like weights here and weights here and instead, and then like pretty lean in the middle. And I think that's a great way to to operate a company, certainly early on. And how do you know when to hire? I know Instagram, when they were a billion-dollar valuation, they had just 13 employees. When I was speaking with the folks over at Rippling, they said, when you have to make mass layoffs, it's really a result of just bad hiring practices. How do you know when you're hiring and you know when not to overhire? 
Yeah, it's tough. I mean, usually when when times are good, you hire a bunch of people and then you look around when times are bad and you're like, oh, geez, which is what's happening across the industry right now. Right. So 2020, it was like everyone was just making a ton of money and hired and hired and hired. And now, you know, it's a lot harder to grow and people are looking around being like, hmm. I don't know if we need all these people. How do you choose to hire? I mean, certainly when you're starting, you need to be very careful about how many people you hire and who you hire. And then as you go forward, you know, a lot of times it's like, well, I'm spending all my time like preparing this report. So we need to hire someone to like prepare the report. And oftentimes I find myself being like, well, have we tried to automate that? Or like, why are you preparing that report? Or like, is there a different way we can do it? Oh yeah, well, I'm preparing this report because we don't want to buy this like $500 piece of software. And it's like, okay, well, we should do that because that's a lot cheaper than hiring someone. So there are definitely, you you really want to like ask why a lot. In our business where we're buying meat and we're cutting meat and we're shipping it to people's houses, There's a lot of operational costs associated with that. Like, and the bigger you get, the more important, like buying meat at the right price matters, or like, you know, using this film instead of this one, or using this packaging instead of this one, like those decisions matter. And so as you get bigger, it makes sense to hire people to like help handle that stuff because somebody can come in and with their expertise be like, oh, we're going to move to this box instead of this one. And save you a dollar. And if you're shipping hundreds hundreds of thousands of boxes, like you make up their salary immediately. So you want to be very careful. And then the other big thing on hiring is you want to make sure even when you like feel like you need a ton of people, you want to make sure that everybody fits your company values. You don't want to like, like give on values. It will backfire. How do you make sure in hiring that the person that you're trying to hire fits the company's values. Yeah. So the first thing you want to do is make sure you have values like written yeah. down, which most companies like skip that step. The best exercise I've seen for that is like you get people in a room and you do a brainstorming exercise about the people that you like the kind of the founding team. What are the characteristics that make them great? And so you get your values. And then from there, you write them down. And then you make sure that everybody is screened somehow against those values. And so that could be a question. It can be just a general demeanor. Like one of ours is humility, right? So it's like hard to ask a question like, are you humble? Like, that's not going to work. So it's kind of like, how do they show up? Do they use like, I, I accomplished this and I did this? Or was it more about their team? Like there are ways that you can kind of look into that. But you really want to make sure like if there, which there should be like a hiring checklist that somebody has said like, yep, I screen them for humility. And I think they're like a go on that. Uh, You just need to make sure that people fit your values. And what happens is like you find this great engineer who's like, yeah, he doesn't, I don't know if he really, he or she like fits our values, but like how we really need an engineer. So like, let's hire them. That never works. I mean, speaking from experience, that generally is a total disaster. You really need to be like, I, I say like a culture is not a culture unless it's defended. Like, so you, if you're not willing to say like no to that person who's technically great, but culturally not great, then you, you don't have a culture. How um, does it become a disaster? 
Well, my first company, we ended up hiring a bunch of people. We didn't have anything written down. We had a general sense of like what our culture was, but we didn't write it down. And we ended up hiring people who didn't fit our culture. And they didn't get along well with others and they weren't humble. And they ended up like building their own little political fiefdoms. And and it for me as the founder... It went from like a place that I found a ton of joy in where like all, a lot of like my good friends were there. Like I was like good friends with all these people. I felt like I had been in the trenches with them. And then all those people left and I brought in these other people who were like off culture, not the right people. And it just became really hard to go to work every day. Like it just, it was a place I didn't want to go. And if you believe like entrepreneurship can be about lifestyle design, it's like I designed I, I I designed myself a lifestyle that was pretty shitty and, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, you build a company to, you know, in one way to do what you want. So right. I, I get that. Agriculture is one of the things I was researching for this podcast. And I noticed it's actually quite a big factor to greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, I believe it's responsible for around a quarter of those emissions. How is ButcherBox not only healthier for you as a person, but also better for the environment. Yeah. So a lot of the studies around, well, beef, we'll, we'll talk about beef because beef is usually the one that is like the biggest environmental issue, which by the way, we agree with. So I'm not going to sit here and say like beef is like great is not an environmental issue. Like that, that's not the case. Beef can be an environmental issue, but there are ways to mitigate it, which is what we're doing. So and and when we look at meat, we want a product that's better for the customer, better for the animal, better for the environment, and better for the farmer. Like we're looking at that whole wheel and trying to make a product that's better for everybody. Because the reality is that most people eat meat. I don't think meat's going away. So I'm trying to make meat better. Now, in terms of environmental footprint, so most of the research has been done on grain-fed animals, not grass-fed animals. And there's a whole bunch of research around regenerative, regenerative agriculture, meaning like the animals, the, the cows will go out and eat on a pasture and they eat grass and they poop and they step in it and they pee. And over time, if you look at that soil, the soil has captured more carbon into the soil. And so it becomes a carbon sink. That is pretty interesting. So you can take these animals and put them on land that's like not that great, that's been, you know whether it's been over-farmed or over-tilled and is not really productive land. And over the course of several years, you can have that land be like fertile again, which is sucking carbon out. So grassland, people always think of trees as like sucking in carbon dioxide, but grassland, like healthy grassland can suck in a ton of carbon. So that's the argument. You know, I think like the future of meat, like the... The younger generation, which you represent, so the younger generation wants a healthier meat for the, the environment. They want the animal treated better. And like these things are important to them. The meat industry isn't really listening. And what we want to do is to convince the meat industry to transform in service of a customer who's just growing in popularity. I think the biggest like kind of mm, challenge or or uh, yeah, the biggest challenge that has happened thus far 
is there's there's a lot of heat around like plant based, like Beyond Meat, Impossible yeah. Burger, like though that's the answer. I don't think that's the answer. Like first of all, you can't even read what like the ingredients are on a Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger, so they become something that like most people who are trying to live healthfully like don't want to feed themselves or their kids. Secondly, it's monocrop soy like it's not very different you're not like really solving the problem you're just now you're over fertilizing a field and planting soy and that that's like not great either so where we differ like i i like to say we agree with vegetarians where we differ is i believe that there's a way to make meat work for more people I think meat consumption, if you look out over the next 20 years, I think meat consumption will go down, but I think, and then I think quality will go up. Like people are going to have meat be less of the center of the plate and be more like a side dish, but they want the quality of that meat, like where it was raised, environmental footprint, uh, all of that stuff, like the claims of that, that meat represents, they want that to be the highest quality possible. And that is what we're trying to do. Like that is what we want our brand to stand for. We want you to be able to go to a grocery store or go online and buy ButcherBox and know that we've gone through every single detail possible to bring you like the, the meat with the smallest wake possible. Because if you're like, I need to eat meat because it's healthier for me, it's healthier for my body, I can build, you know, build muscle. It's like, I need protein, all that stuff. It is, um, we're trying to make the best possible version of that all under one label that you can just, you, 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 you can trust it. Gotcha. I know when I, I tried a Impossible Burger uh, a month ago and watched some YouTube videos on it that said like, oh, it's basically like real meat. So I tried it. I'm like, this tastes like a plastic burger. It did not taste <laughs> like a real burger. And I think one of the reasons why I did it was because of how burgers were previously sourced. So yeah, I am really interested in what you guys are working on over at Butcher Box. Now that we transition a little bit, if you could give, now's the time, when May 23rd, college students are graduating right about now. If you could give one piece of advice to graduating college students, what would it be? Gosh, like any or one that wants to be in entrepreneurship or like, like just blanket advice for any, any college advice. grad, a any college grad. <laughs> okay. I think the most important thing for people and ideally they started before college, but if they didn't, that's okay. The most important thing for people is to start investing and saving. Like, you know, I, I think a 10% rule is great. I think a 20% rule is even better. But when you make a paycheck, take 10% and have that sweep out of your paycheck immediately and go into an investment account. You can use something like Betterment or you can get more fancy. Just play like the indices. Don't like go, don't, don't buy stocks with that. Like just let it build in a set it and forget it type of way. You, what you'll find is over time, you do that compounding interest just like compounds on itself and you end up having a fairly large nest egg pretty quickly. That gives you the freedom to then go do other things later, right? So when, when you're 30 and you've been doing this for 10 years, you've got, you know, 50,000, 75,000, $100,000 worth of like just sitting there. So the way that I operate and I did this before is... I did 10% at least of my income, just sweep it into an account. Then I would get a raise and I would take most of that and sweep it into account and keep my lifestyle here and just keep going and like every, and, and, and then live on the rest. Right. So 
You're not going into credit card debt. And what I find is if I leave it in my, if I'm like, oh, at the end of the month, then I'll put it into an account. That doesn't work for me because like at the end of the month, there isn't anything left. So for me, what works in, and I've lots of employees here that I'm like, do this. I promise you it'll work well. And they're like, oh my God, I have so much money now. You just invest, like start saving and investing early. You'll have so many more options later in life. Yeah, I'm even surprised that personal finance for a lot of high schools in the United States is still not a requirement. I know for, for my colleges. Yeah, colleges. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not a requirement for college either, especially if you're taking on student loans, etc. What about career advice? What would be one piece of career advice you'd give? Hmm. Follow your passion. The money will follow. I think what you are excited about is where to where to go. The other one is like, what we find here is the people that do much better, like here are willing to say yes to like additional stuff. Like if you ask somebody who works here, like, Hey, I want you to do a project and it's going to be like an additional 20% of your time. Do you have time for it? Or, or like, Hey, blanket poll, who has 10% more time to give to like a special project. Like nobody's hand goes up, right? Because they're like, oh, I'm so stretched. And the people who are like, I'll do it. And like, I don't care. I'm just going to get it done. Those people get ahead. And so it's like when people are giving you the red balloon to grab onto, make sure you grab onto it. And you're not like, well, like, I don't know if I'm the right person. or I don't know if I have enough time. Like, fuck that. Just like, go for it. Especially when you're young. Because as you get older you have more responsibilities, right? So like whether it's kids or whether it's a spouse, you start having to also solve for other people, not just yourself and your career. So early on, just say yes to everything. That's great advice. What would probably be your life goal before you die? What do you want to have accomplished or done? Oof. Jeez. I, I, I'm really interested in transforming meat. I think that there's an opportunity. So when I started this, I wanted it as a hobby. And then it was like, oh, maybe I'll just sell this really fast. And now I'm like, you know, I think like I'm supposed to like go and try to transform this industry. And whether it's working on like you know, Prop 12 in California, which we kind of helped promote and push through whether it's, you know, proving to large companies that like there is a market for this type of product and it's growing, working with small farmers to be able to compete against the large guys, like all of that stuff we're doing, that seems like a huge mission. Meat is a massive industry in this country and it's it's quite broken. And we are in a unique position in that we've never raised money. We have a very long time horizon. Like we're in a unique position where I could say in my lifetime, like meat could actually be measurably changed and we could be the ones to do it. And last deep question, before we wrap it up with the takeaways, hypothetically, if I give you a phone virtually, if I slide you over a phone and you could say one thing to your 15 year old self, would you call? And if so, what would you say? Ooh, would I call? Yes. What would I say? You are loved. So for some takeaways, where can the audience learn more about ButcherBox? I'll have a link in the description, but where can they learn more? Yeah, well, you can go to ButcherBox and you can use the coupon code MikeSentMe for, I think it's $30 off your first box. 
Or you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Salguero. And I talk a lot about ButcherBox on there. Awesome. All right. Well, that wraps it up for today's episode. Thank you very much, Mike, for taking the time to join the show. I greatly appreciate it. We'll have a link down in the episode description for ButcherBox for anyone interested in checking it out. That wraps it up for this one. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it.